Welcome to Ahead of the Game, a podcast brought to you by the Digital Marketing Institute. I'm your host, Will Francis, and today we'll be talking to serial entrepreneur, mentor, and advisor to businesses, Maeve Neefsey, about growing a business internationally, scaling beyond our own borders, whether operating in the B2C or the B2B space. Maeve, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. Thank you, Will. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. We've never really touched too heavily on the internationalization of businesses. So I'd love to hear your thoughts and experience on that. Before we really get into the weeds of it, let's just set the scene. Um, your work has involved um, really working in lots of different places across lots of different borders. Just give us, give us an overview of where in the world your footprint of experience and businesses lies. Actually, when I started, and the first job I ever had was the UK, um, and you know, I, 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 it was it was all markets in the UK, particularly London, but and the environs around London. So that was my first first marketing role, really. Um, and then later on, I went back to the UK again, a lot later on, probably about eight years ago, when I launched a product specifically targeting the UK market. So that, that's the UK market, a lot of experience there. But then I've also been in Germany and Poland, so that I would have targeted those markets as well. Um, and then most recently, uh, Silicon Valley uh, in the US um, and Connecticut, the East Coast and the West Coast. I think that's probably the best way to explain it, because I, I think if you just say the US, it's completely misleading because it, it's a whole lot of countries within a country, which we probably know more about now because we've been watching the politics. But actually, economically, it is also very, very um, localized. That's interesting. How does that affect operating there? Is it like operating in a block like in, in Europe or something? It's such a good question. It's, it's actually much more like Europe. Okay, yes, culturally there isn't this big difference because you're all speaking the same language. You have the same federal government, but you know, local um, culture, attitudes, um, needs are very different uh, in the states. And in fact, the biggest mistake, you know, I know we're going to touch on this later for for companies trying to go international, particularly in, in big markets like the US, is to see it as one market. It's not. It's, it's very, very different um, and because they just are like communities themselves. I mean, think about California. California is, the economy of California could survive absolutely on its own. It's enormous. Um, and, you know, that's, it's a big important part of America, just as much as Texas is. But Texas is completely different in terms of people's attitude. And, you know, we know from politics that if you, if you don't understand your audience to say the wrong thing politically, it's not that far away economically either. That's very true. That yeah, no, I'd love to love to hear more about that as we get deeper into it. Um, now, of course, our core audience is digital marketers wanting to learn more about that specific discipline. So, what role does digital marketing play in internationalization? And has the rise of digital become a bit of a catalyst or a, um, a sort of facilitator of in internationalization? I mean, in every single way, you know. The internet has affected our lives, but I do believe that digital has affected marketing enormously. Um, and I kind of thought, call it the three A's. You know, there's the access, the a a a attitude, appetite, and ability. So, you know, you can access markets because now you can see and learn about them online. And I can talk to you about that in a minute. But you can also, consumers and buyers have the appetite. That's what digital has done for us because now people want to buy internationally because they can see it and they can, they can figure out what it is. And of course, that's accelerated with the pandemic. Um, and then we've got the ability, we've got the tools to enable us to do that. So if you think just about access, you know, online gives us access, 
because we can understand our customers, we can research them, we can um, you know, understand their needs, we can look at our competitors, we can understand who our customers are. All of that stuff was impossible really before online. So, and that underpins, as you know, marketing, but digital marketing in particular. Um, so that's made international marketing have access to all that capability, which makes it possible to go internationally because the barriers to entry are suddenly much, much less. Does geography matter at all now? I mean, in theory, you can have a business based anywhere and you can sell to absolutely anywhere. Is that an oversimplification? Well, I mean, I suppose in principle, yes, of course you can sell to absolutely anybody. Um, you know, that's what Amazon are doing. You know, it, it can be done. I think what, 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 what most businesses who aren't Amazon, and even Amazon, where do you start? You start with your sweet spot and then you, you build from there. Um, and if you look at, um, you know, if we were to build a matrix, you and I, and say, okay, what are the important things that is going to make it really easy for us to sell in a new market? That matrix is going to be looking for certain criteria. And, and, and let's say, for example, we are targeting English-speaking countries because we're perhaps English-speaking ourselves. That's going to be one criteria. Another one may be that they just have a very high appetite, for example, if we're, if we're selling stuff online for e-commerce. So you're going to have a matrix of things that narrow down the territories you go after first, and then you expand from there. But I think you have to start where you're most likely to succeed. Got you. Yeah, absolutely. The um, play where you can win and find that, I suppose, lowest hanging fruit, for want of a better phrase. Um, okay, and I, I mean, you're. Uh, just, I'm interested. You, you obviously, you're Irish, and I see a classic thing I see. I, I teach a lot of Irish marketers um, through various courses, and I see there's this always this desire to grow into the UK. So that's a classic kind of growth trajectory from being an Irish business to then growing into the UK, and obviously then beyond to the US. Um, now that seems like that should be very simple. What are there any reasons why that's not? Well, Brexit. <laughs> yeah, that does seem to be a big one that people talk about. It has. I mean, both psychologically and actually, you know, because, mm. you know, the whole tax regime, who do you pay, when do you pay, delivery, the whole flow between the two countries have changed. Um, and, and so that that's obviously a macroeconomics that will change that. But, of course, the, the, the common language is going to be a huge attraction and, and the cultural uh, sameness, if you like, in, in many ways, in terms of what we, how we buy and how we, how we sell. Um, but, you know, if, if you're going to, if, you, if you're saying, look, one of my key criteria is a, is a country where the, the, we have common language and similar culture, the UK has got to be a no-brainer. But if there's barriers put up because we're not in, in the same common market anymore, well, then that, that's going to be, the possibility makes you look somewhere else, right? And then you say, okay, what's next? Maybe it's Canada, because culturally with Canada, you know, that we've a lot in common, the language isn't common, and in many ways they're very, very keen to start internationalizing more. So they're maybe a better bet in some cases than, than going to the States first, because everybody goes to the States first. True. It's, yeah, it's a saturated market, isn't it? Do you find that in the growth trajectory of a business, there's an obvious point at which they should start thinking about expanding beyond their borders? I mean, I think in reality, I think most companies that I've worked with are, are my own. Is that it, it always comes down to the attitude of the, of the leadership team, really. Do they want to and do they have the appetite? So let's say that's a given. Then it's a case of, well, what are we going to need to make that happen? Is the product internationalizable? Can, is, 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 are we, you know, and that's only going to be answered by doing some research into the markets you're thinking of going into. 
So it, I think marketing play a really important role even before businesses even deciding to get into another territory and deciding whether how they're going to market themselves. Because marketing can play a role and say, well, is there a gap there? It's not just sales. Sales and marketing will work very much hand in hand at that stage to identify it. Um, but look, you have to be where you have got a really good playbook already. You understand how to sell and how to market to your existing customers. You've got the funding to enable you to do it and the infrastructure. And you understand how are you going to enter the market because... You know, some of the big mistakes that happen when people enter market is either they overcommit and they don't test. In other words, they set up a big infrastructure in the locality, overcommit, and then the pressure's on from day one to, to make it work. Instead of going in, at what I call kind of skirmishes where you're going in and you're testing the market, getting information from your local people. So, so you know, I think that's, you know, really how you're going to make up your mind if it's the right time for you to go. Yeah, I mean, I've had a taste of that. I've, I've, you know, I've run an agency, an advertising agency myself, and I've had a taste of that expanding into other markets. And I've definitely, I've seen that happen with people I know that run agencies where, because for a small business, you talk about infrastructure, literally hiring one person, like in another country is a pretty big commitment, isn't it, for, for a small business of a few people. Um, so you might decide, oh, we're going to hire a salesperson in the US, and we're just going to hope that the salary they're paying them starts to come back. I get that. Um, and so for a service-led business like that, take, take, let's take, because you obviously you know about running agencies, what would be a good first step into a, a big market like the US? A really good customer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's the first thing. So that you'd get the customer first. Get the customer first. If I was starting, yeah. I'd go through all of my existing customers who we've got a good relationship with, and I'd try and identify, can, can I use one of them as a land and expand strategy to get into that country? And I'd probably then ask them before I'd even ask them to help me find a customer, you know, within the group. I'd probably say, there's somebody who'd be my champion. I want to research the, the market. So there I'm getting market research to understand is the fit correct. But at the same time, I'm seeding myself a potential customer. Right, because you might get to have some of your staff spend time in that country or even get to hire someone to manage that account in that country who can then also spend maybe a little bit of their time on sales and just having some a few coffees and meet and greets with potential clients, right? This kind of land and expand strategy, I like that. Exactly. Or I remember I, when I was selling to tech companies in particular, um, I asked them, I wanted to get into, their, into a new territory. And what I did was I asked them, could I shadow somebody in the company? And in return for that, I'd give them some services. So they said yes. And so I learned not only about how they buy, because it was different, because it was HQ rather than, than, than a local office. Um, and then they also became my champion internally to, to other customers potentially. If that makes sense. So you're kind of, you're almost going under the radar in the guise of research, but eventually it's actually going to help you get that customer. Yes, no, I get that. I, so you're basically doing it without the risk. Um, I think it's that upfront. If you, if you find yourself spending upfront without knowing you've got any clientele in that country, that's obviously, a, it sounds like a problem, doesn't it? I'd say if you and I sat down with about, let's say we, we picked 10 CEOs of, of mid-sized companies who've gone international, I bet mo- nine out of 10 would have said how they got into that country was they, one of their customers in their local market brought them into the international market. It is usually the way. Interesting. Well, that's very, that's very interesting. That Right. Yeah, I get that. So, that's obviously a, a kind of a B2B scenario. Do you think that there's a big difference between the way a B2B or a B2C company would grow internationally? Are there specific considerations on each side, do you think? I suppose with, with, with um, 
you know, with anybody, you know, when you're trying to, let, let's assume you and I have decided we're going into another country, okay? The principles of how you're going to do that are going to, and how you identify how best to market yourself into that is, is going to be the same wherever you are. So with, with, with a beat, like mostly, as we know, it's emotions driving people's decisions, even though they'll pretend it's logic that's driving it, it's not. So you have to understand as well the motivators behind your customers. And that's the same for B2C or B2B. You know, what, what, what are these people about? Do they have the, do they have the, do they identify with the same types of priorities or um, affinities as my existing customers? Or are they different? And so let's, for example, say what's going to make them, most people in the B2B buyer wants to enhance their own status by buying our product. Okay. There's an element of that. They may not say that's why they're buying it. But if you think of Salesforce, there are lots of other CRM tools out there that I would say are probably better than Salesforce and certainly easier to use and certainly easier to deploy. But an awful lot of buyers want to buy Salesforce because they believe it's the tool that says we're successful. Okay? So that's an emotional buy covered by logic. And I think consumers are the same. And, but I think the mistake some people make is that they think B2B aren't emotive and they're buying. They are. You just have to figure out. So I think the approach is the same. Find out what's going to drive the customer in the first place. So what are their hierarchy of needs? Um, and then understand the culture, because the culture could be different in terms of what they think is important. So, it, for example, in, in Ireland now, I think there's a big feeling and belief in an actual activity where employees and buyers want to be part of a company that's sustainable and that has principles around that. But you might go into another country, I'm not going to say which one, but they don't care about that at all. So you get the messaging wrong. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? And I suppose that extends to if you're going to start building a footprint in a particular country, the way that you attract talent, things I've certainly noticed that very different things matter to potential staff in various countries. Um, there do seem to be differences, for instance, between the US and the UK, between Europe and the UK, in my experience. Absolutely. And actually, there's a really good example. Um, we, I help um, my partner. I'm the, I'm the CMO for, for podcasts, a series of podcasts. Um, and, they, and you know as well as I do, podcast work because of the very niche nature of them. And one of them is um, a legal podcast called The Fifth Court. And the sponsors who approach us, we always think, oh, this is great. They want to spread the word about their capabilities within the legal profession. But actually, they want to hire really good people. So they use our podcasts to, you know, to amplify their message and they, that they want to employ people. But it's all about their principles and what they stand for. So it's all about identify the niche and understand what the customer really is trying to um, achieve through the marketing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. Interesting. Right. Okay. Um, and in terms of the cultural differences, just in general, entering a market, um, think a bit more about that B2C type thing. I mean, it depends what kind of thing it is, doesn't it? But if you're selling products, it seems that it relies less on who you are and how you operate and what your culture is because essentially you're just, you know, you're just selling something on a website, right? So it seems to be maybe you can be a bit more tone deaf to local cultures and steam in and just sell them your widget, whatever it happens to be. I don't know. I don't know, Will. I mean, I would kind of, I would disagree with you on that because I think if you just think of your commodity as a product, as a commodity rather, if your product is a commodity, then it's a race to the bottom because there's always going to be somebody in the world of the internet that's going to be able to produce something cheaper than you. Always. I mean, that's a given. So you have to be able to uh, uh, communicate and add a value. And you'll only be able to add the value if you understand the culture of who you're selling to. So, you know, if, if for example, um, you know, 
your product, uh, you know, is runners. You, you buy a particular runner for more money because of a very good reason. They've marketed to you in a way that you, you can identify with and you want to be part of that family. Um, so I do think it's, you know, and, and look, there's other little cultural nuances. For example, when we first started selling into Germany, online e-commerce. I mean, Germans really do not have a high percentage of people using credit cards. So you need to understand that in terms of how you set things up. But that's, that's kind of factual things. But um, I think added value is important for whatever market you go into. Yes. No, of course. Um, of course, just slightly playing devil's advocate there. But yeah. Um, right. Okay. So I'd love to hear what you think are the common reasons that companies succeed or fail internationally. Do you know, I was thinking about this because it's a really good question. Um, and I don't want to sound like a know-it-all, but I, I can only talk to you about my own experience, right? And some of the things that I've seen is there an assumption that my playbook that works in the UK market is going to work in the US market. That's not the case. You know, sometimes you can be really lucky. I mean, if, if, if somebody really wants something, it doesn't matter sometimes about the cultural differences. If you really, I don't know if you guys know the social media network next door. So they're, they're like a Facebook, but, it, 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 you know, they're, they're basically closed community and neighborhood-based, exactly. So I know I did some work with them, and I know how they approach going to new markets. Now, they would do it and have a local understanding of how people operate in the communities, but the desire for a community network was common across all the countries. So it, the amount of tweaking of the playbook didn't have to change that much, and how they market it didn't have to change that much. But if you take something, you know, um, you know less innovative in a way, I think you really do have to understand the, the culture of the organization. And, and that's a mistake some people skip. They say, I, I don't have to look at new segments. I don't have to understand my sweet spot customers. I don't have to understand what messaging will work. I already got that all worked out. Because people have their personas and they believe that they are universal. So, so should I have different personas per territory? I think the thing is do the personas and then decide whether you do or don't need them. You know what I mean? So if you if you start off saying, okay, let's try and understand the persona of who we believe is our sweet spot, because I always start with the sweet spot, right? And then if you're working with somebody local, they could say, oh, no, they'd never do that, or that's actually wrong. Then you begin to understand really quickly the personas are different. And either you just tweak the persona and allow your messaging to, to match that, or you may say, actually, the persona is wrong, we need to change it. Um, because, you know, organizations can be very, some, some countries are very structured in terms of how decisions are made. Um, whereas America is very fast and quick, particularly within smaller companies, you tend to get quick decisions quickly and there isn't a huge committee approach, whereas in other countries it's the opposite. Um, so knowing that is going to change your buyer persona. Interesting. Right. OK. Any other obvious reasons that companies fail? Um, I think sometimes they put way too much in, you know, in terms of financial commitments. They say, we're going into this country, we need an office. I think that's... Yeah. That's, so it feels way. good, doesn't it, getting an office? Let's face it, it feels great. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've, had, I've got offices in New York, Paris, and Madrid, you know. Well, look, let's get down to basics. It, it's almost not, but it's almost like starting again. You, you, the same principles apply. You know, where's the most likes, where are our most concentration of our customers? What exactly are their needs? How do they operate? How do they buy? You know, are consumers obsessed about the same things if it's B2C as, as ours are? And then going in and testing things, which is what online is brilliant at doing, tweaking and testing. Uh, but don't rely on online, on online only. You have to talk to the customer. Uh, and sometimes another mistake is hiring people too fast, whereas the people who are in HQ, whether they be a founder or, some, you know, or a manager, 
coming into the new territory and really understanding how the product fits within the territory is really key because I've seen people hire people, spend an absolute fortune, and next thing, it's not going where it should go. And they've also put massive pressure on the, on the endeavour. Hello, a quick reminder from me that if you're enjoying our podcast series, why not become a member of the DMI so that you can enjoy loads more content from webinars and case studies to toolkits and more real-life insights from the world of digital marketing. Head to digitalmarketinginstitute.com forward slash ahead of the game to sign up for free. Now back to the podcast. Do you think there's a role for a form of franchising if you're doing particularly well in your home market? Because again, this is something that came up in the ad agency world where um, it wasn't an opportunity that we followed, but it was presented to us by someone in another territory. Basically, they said, could we take your brand, your decks, your credentials, your everything, and basically use it here as sales material, and we will sell and operate as you. And obviously, you'll get a cut of that revenue. And we're never quite sure about it, so we didn't go ahead with it. But um, I believe that has happened in in the agency world not it's not not huge a huge amount but do you know what i mean and it's a way of it is a way of entering a market in kind of um well, to appear to enter a market at almost no risk have you ever seen any kind of model like that work for a business i think like the, the closest thing i would have seen is partnerships you know where where you, you find a partner uh and and, and basically they use all your collateral and they but it's like a distribution but closer you know a partner um, and I think that's if, 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 but I still think you're going to have to spend a lot of time in it to make it work. So whether it's actually better off to do it through somebody who's exactly the right match for you, because you're going to have to put all that effort into them really understanding it's not just a deck, a, sl- a slide deck. There's much more is there behind any product, uh, and and how you've sold and whether that selling matches that that organisation. And they're going to have loads of questions. So your the amount of time I experience of partnerships, the time involved, is very very. Um, intense and that's probably you know is it better to do it yourself I don't know you'd have to weigh it up it's an option though isn't it I think you're right partnering so you're saying just just to make this very broad and universal partnering with existing offerings in that country that are like you but where you could bring them something that would help them acquire more customers whether it's some more credentials some more impressive credentials or collateral of some sort or some an extra service, an extra string to their bow, or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's say, let's pretend you have, um, I don't know, you sell bread, uh, but you know that you, your average uh, customer spend is low, but you want to add a new product. Let's say it's cakes, and you have this perfect partnership with somebody else who provides cakes, but you can brand them as your own. Brilliant! You've added value with very little effort. That sounds fine. The hard part is finding the right partner because you don't want to a bring in cakes that actually aren't great and therefore reduce your own quality perception with your customers or the guy who's selling you cakes really doesn't care a lot and therefore they're not putting the effort into the relationship. So it's a, you're looking for some an element of parity but also complementary so that both sides are, are putting the effort in at the same level, if not exactly the same, very close in order to work. Um, so if we've been in partnerships where people start to want to collect products or collect software or, 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 or collect brands what you mean just keep broadening the offering so that the, their offering looks really deep but they're not willing to put any kind of real concentration of effort on your product so that's no good and you've done all the work so it's really important to get the right match yes that makes a lot of sense i get that um okay so there's some reasons why why it fails have you ever 
come across or witnessed uh, a key masterstroke or, or, or feature of a business that's led to, that's clearly led to its success in internationalising? I, I tell you, I'm going to use one that people recognise, and not rather my own experience. Um, I mean, HubSpot to me mm. internationalised brilliantly. Um, and I think what they, well, firstly, they had a strong differentiator that was in other markets. You know, it wasn't just their own market. The differentiator being, you know, easy to deploy, very easy to use, marketing automation and consolidated um, analytics across multiple channels. But nobody else was really doing that well. And all of the incumbents were in a very different way of selling. Make it complex, make it hard, make the extra on the professional services. But HubSpot went the other way. They, the master stroke was A, make it easy, brand, but also brilliant customer service. And, and, and at the beginning, when I was first using HubSpot, even on trials, you got brilliant customer service. And not just, they didn't just pick up the phone. They were brilliant at being good at telling you how to solve the problem. And they used all the web tools to enable them to navigate you through, help you basically, when nobody else was doing that. And I think that really helped them accelerate, particularly with mid-range, small and mid-range. Yeah. What's the learning there for, for businesses? Sort of just make sure that you go above and beyond and, and make sure you're always beating the competition in that new territory or something. I'm not, what, what's the kind of learning? I suppose for me, the learning is they really knew the gap in the market because the incumbents, let's say at the time, really were Salesforce and Microsoft Dynamics. And they're, you know, they, they, had, they, they were going more and more into the part of professional services, you know, hire a whole person to be able to manage your Salesforce deployment. So they said there's a gap there, but they moved fast enough. And in a way that was very attractive to those who couldn't take on the big, huge um, projects with Salesforce and um, Microsoft Dynamics. And they got in quickly to to match the the gap. They matched the gap really well. Yeah, yeah. It's a good good, good case study that. Like you, I was a, I think I was an early-ish user of HubSpot. I don't know, but they did seem very hot on uh, customer service and also sales and just feeling like there was a real team of people behind it whether they were trying to upsell you or they were just looking after you. Um, yeah, there's a lot to be said there and a lot of content marketing as well, of course. Um, okay, so what what advice would you have for very, very small firms wanting to enter international markets? You know, if, if you're a very small firm, I think I would just approach it like we talked earlier on about it as if this is a new, I'm launching a new business. Now, look, you might be incredibly lucky and find that you go and do your competitive analysis, you get close to your customers and understand what kind of what kind of solution, sorry, what problems you're solving for them, okay? And when it's B2B, it could be that they need a promotion. I mean, it can be that basic. But what problem are you solving for them? Um, and then do lots of testing before you make a big financial commitment to, an organ- to, to a country or a territory. And, and I would use as much as you can existing networks that are in those locations to try and accelerate, you know, all of the work you need to do to prepare yourself and get ready to identify the right customer to sell to. So it could be um, some sort of enterprise body. It could be associations that are related to you, but some way that you're getting access to a lot of people that you can find information from so that A, you can see, do we, do we actually fit and match this? And B, can they help me get more customers more quickly? And then when you figure out, look, we've tweaked our playbook a bit, We've changed slightly how we were going to market because it's different here. We think we know where our sweet spot is. Then set really serious, uh, clear KPIs for yourself rather than fooling yourself that you're doing really well because you've spoken to 80 people last week. You know, 
right? Are we actually, you know, making conversions? What's blocking us? So it's very similar to starting from scratch, except for your product is more advanced. Yeah. Are there any specific digital marketing channels you think? I'm just running through my head here. Like, do you try and get local PR? Do you try and do local kind of localized content marketing? Have you have you seen any particular particular digital channels work well in in that? There's a company I work with, and we really wanted to target the UK market, uh, and the UK market particularly in electrical contractors. And so what we did was we used a YouTube channel that had. 250,000 uh, subscribers, but we really got close to them. So it allowed us to kind of get access to uh, you know, very big intelligence about what the market wanted, but not have to put all the infrastructure in ourselves. So we, we did sponsored content with them, but because they already had the channel and the audience, we didn't have to put a massive expense for us to get there. That's nice. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually, doesn't it? Sort of influencer marketing, essentially. Um, getting talked about the creators that people listen to in that market. I think that's a really good shout. That's very good, Dan. I like that. Try and start your own channel, right? It's too hard. You might be able to do it later, but at the beginning, use somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and just that, you're looking for that trust, aren't you? You really got to try and fast track to having that trust. And I'm not saying influencer marketing, you kind of can just switch trust on like a switch, but it really helps, doesn't it? Accelerate becoming known and, and in some way respected in a market. That's great. Love that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the other thing is that, you know, we, the other way when you're selling in Germany, if you're, if you're an English-speaking country, and I'm not saying, obviously, everybody listening to this from lots of different countries, but there's a temptation to say, look, the Germans could speak really good English. Let's sell to them. But actually, Germans like to be sold to by Germans. You know, it's, it's easier. There's cultural identification. Not that it's impossible, but, you know, the reality is it's sometimes easier. So if you, if we, in using that channel that we used, which was the, you know, giving advice about products online to an audience that really needed the information, really practical stuff, the fact that there was the local voice talking about it and our products made it, as you said, much easier to trust us. It wasn't us with a funny Irish accent speaking. <laughs> you know, it was, it was somebody local that they identified with. So it really accelerated the trust level. Absolutely. Um... Yeah, I think I think that's that's, uh, that's a great tactic. That I think, and I suppose, of course, you know, it's um, surround sound marketing as ever, isn't it? You know, Google found in some research a year or two ago that it takes, so uh, you know, seven was it like, you know, seven hours with a brand across eleven different touch points across at least four different channels, and it's it is about that kind of multi-channel approach as ever. But I think starting with influencers is a great idea. Um, okay, and things I think local media as well, local PR and media seems to be a, a sort of a similar related point. I think. Yeah, and I think one of the things that um, podcasts can be great as long as they're niche and they match you really well, because the, the cost of entry is not very high, uh, and often you can do a package where you know you're you're doing some promotion and marketing, but they're also going to interview you as part of the package, and that's even the hosts are trusted by the audience that accelerates, you know, their sense that you're part of their community. And again, if you're lucky enough to have something that really targets the right audience for you and and local papers can be brilliant as well, because people may not necessarily get their international news and their national news from newspapers anymore, but they will use local. So they can be, there can be little niches that can be your secret sauce. 
it's true that local papers, local radio stations um, can be very strong in some areas. You, you notice that. I've been surprised by that in places I've been to, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, you. so you mentor businesses through Enterprise Island, is that right? Yes, I do, and, and some of the accelerators as well. Um, and that's great work because you learn so much, obviously, that you can share on with, with other people. Of course, of course. And is is in, is is internationalization sort of a default thing that's definitely going to happen down the road for all of those businesses ultimately yes i mean just to go back actually accelerators can be a great way to enter a new market oh, yeah go on yeah i meant to say that to you before that how we entered our market in silicon valley because we were targeting technology companies and just by being part of an accelerator, which if anybody doesn't know what that is, it's basically an organization that's there to help startup companies hurry up their growth. And what they do is they kind of form a community and then they have a network of people that they'll introduce you to. So that can be a great way of entering the market if it's the right audience. Um, but I think accelerators only really want people who are going international most of the time. They, 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 it's kind of go big or go home. They want to have a product that is the capability of scaling because often you'll be part of that accelerator but for free, but they'll take some equity in the firm. So they're taking the long game, if you like. They're waiting for you to be sold or, you know, to make take your next round of investment for them to be able to get their money back. So they're looking at international. Yeah, of course. Yeah, the, the, that's right. They're not going to get the money back from a, a locally successful business necessarily in the same, with the same odds. Right, okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So accelerators exist in most countries in the world well you think and, and they're open to being approached by foreign companies who want to start something up in that country mostly they try and target startups because it means they can get equity you know whereas if you're a well-established company it's not going to be the same thing but sometimes the accelerators also want to introduce companies that have interesting products to the people who are either their investors you know or to the companies that are participating in the accelerator so the, the Look, it's a fantastic network. There's many angles. Like Plug and Play is the biggest accelerator probably in the world. And, and we actually were in there, whatever, three years ago. And they do an awful lot of work with them, trying to match you up with the right customers, you know, to try and accelerate your growth. So big companies come in there and look at all the technologies that are available, all the startups, and try and buy in the new ideas. Well, that's the thing. I think embedding yourself through networking, it could be a very lonely experience just going to a, another country and setting up shop without any support network or any network at all. And, and I think um, being able to graft yourself onto a existing network like these accelerators, I think, yeah, that I can see why that makes sense. The other thing, Will, is that there's, you know, for all countries, when you go there, whether you're Polish, Czechoslovakian, is it Czechoslovakia anymore? I don't think so. Uh, whether you're, um, you know, Japanese, there, there are groups of your own compatriots who often have networks in the country you're trying to get into. And that can be because they always have a very open mind to try and enable you to either share their information and knowledge about local um, business and how it operates or to make an intro to a customer. Yes, that's true, isn't it? And, and there's a strong bond there already with um, compatriots. So you, there'll always be a sort of a goodwill <laughs> from your, your fellow countrymen. Um, yes, interesting. Okay. And of course, a lot of that can be done digitally, Will. Sorry, you I mean you can you can link with them. I use LinkedIn massively. My way of kind of finding um, contacts that could be useful to me. And people, are, particularly if you're from the same country, they just all the barriers are down. They're much more willing to help you. 
do you think you could walk us through a realistic, a real world internationalization process? Look, I'm saying words everybody knows, and there's nothing in here that's going to go, oh my God, she's just exploded the whole way things are done. It's like any other marketing. You have to start at the beginning, discover your customer. Um, so in other words, what are their needs? What are their motivations? You know, what are they, what are they worry about? You know, and, and in B2B buying, it can often be, you know, they, they want to get a promotion. They want to make, not make a bad decision, by the way, avoid risk. They want to avoid hassle. They want to gain praise. They want to have fun, you know, whatever it is. And of course, make a profit. But, but make a profit is often not top of the list, right? So anyway, customer discovery. And for consumers, they want something that makes them feel good. They want to be part of, buy something that they think is the right kind of product for them. Okay. So customer discovery. And, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with a, a book called The Mom, M-O-M, Test by Rob Patrick, and, and that's a great way of, in a new, organ, a new country, asking questions where people will answer with honest answers, not what they think you want to hear. So anyway, that's, that's what I would always start with. Uh, and the other thing is your competitors. You've got to find out who your competitors are. And online, you know, you can do that so well. And just talk me through the, the mom test, because listeners probably won't know what that is. So the mom test is, um, it, it works, the, the book came about because a startup found that when they were doing their research, they were asking questions in such a way that people were answering either not honestly or they were telling them what they wanted to hear, which is useless. And we all do it. I mean, you know, nobody wants to be t- told that their brilliant product or business is, 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 is rubbish. Okay, so, so therefore we tend to answer nicely, even though in the back of our mind we're saying, I wouldn't even bother bringing that product into this country. We've got 50 other products that are just as good. So the mom test is a way of asking questions so that you get open, honest answers as much as possible. But you're not doing it as a sales process. You're doing it as a customer discovery. So um, you'd start off probably saying, how do you solve this problem now today? Rather than saying, I've got this product, should solve this problem for you, if you understand the difference. You want to understand, has anybody got this problem by asking them how they solve it now? And if if they've already solved it, then you think, well, I've got to have a think about why my product might be one they'd switch to. So it, it's very easy to follow. I'm, I don't want to overcomplicate it, but you can get the YouTube videos if you just put in the mom test. You'll find them. Um, and they're really good at saying, this is how to ask the question. And also there's a book. Um, because so many times people tell us what we want to hear. And it's a very costly mistake that somebody's telling you something that isn't the case. Absolutely. Right. So we basically, we get that information we know the audience, we've done our audience research, we've done competitive research, we really understand the competitor set in that market. And then I suppose that will also give us a view on what the customer expectations are, right? Uh, kind of loops back to that. So what, what's, what's the next step? Then so identify the sweet spot. So who, who is it? Where, where, who, which customer base and which type of customer are we going to start with? Because, you know, as everybody says, oh, anybody can buy my product. You know, anybody can buy pencils. Yes, but isn't it maybe stationary suppliers are the first place to start, right? You can sell lots to them. So identifying the sweet spot. And then it comes down to what's my route to market. And that's really, for me, really critical when you're expanding internationally. So is my route to market through partners? Is my route to market through adding value to another product? Is my route to market through an organization or a body? Is my route to market directly online selling? So really understanding how are you going to accelerate your ability to sell? Um, 
And that's key because that, if you get that right, that can be massively accelerating. Yes, oh, I, I can understand. Okay, right. So I've got my route to market nailed down. Is there, is there something next? I mean, look, me, it's then, okay, what are the targets? Let, let's set ourselves three, six, eight, nine, ten month targets. And then when I know what the targets are, what is the, what is the infrastructure I need to support that? Do, can I do it all from HQ with some local knowledge? Do I need to, have, do, I need to do something else? You know, and therefore you're beginning to see what the budgets are and you're laying out your plan and your timelines. And then what I do is, again, I do test campaigns of different tactics that I've, 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 based on my customer discovery, I think are going to work. So, you know, in that, and I, of course, will be informed by what I've done previously in my own market. And I'll be testing to see what responses I get back. And again, I thought the KPI is pretty tight so that I'm seeing if it worked or not. Um, and then I would review, tweak, test again, and then review, tweak, and then say, okay, let's go. What's, what's, what's now going to be the marketing plan? Yes. What if, it, what, if, um, what if it's going really badly in the first kind of couple of months? You know, I mean, not just like a tweak badly, but like, you know, disastrously. Then you've got to figure out why. I mean, if, if it is that the why is because, you know, let's say you've got yogurt, okay, and you're, 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 you're from, I don't know, Greenland, and you decide you're going to op- enter the UK market. I mean, how many yogurts are there in the UK? Or let's say you're going to make, enter the Irish market. We've got really high quality yogurts. It's probably not the market to enter unless there's some tweak that you've got that makes it really special. And it could be that our Atlantic yogurt, um, you know, makes you grow 10 feet tall. But other than that, it's another yogurt in a very crowded market. So maybe what you learn is actually this isn't going to work. Or no, we've got the wrong tactics. But, you know, it's, it, it's better to fail fast than long, painful fail. It is. It is. That, that is true. There is a point at which you have to say this is not the market for this product. No, I mean, if you think about Guinness Light, you guys probably don't remember because you're way too young. But Guinness Light was, you know, now you know there is a, a, a light Guinness, right? Or a, a low alcohol. There was one 25, 30 years ago, a dismal failure. Yeah, dismal failure. So big brands with loads of money can fail if they beat the market wrong and the customer need is not there. Yeah, of course. And, you know, that's uh, if you look at the biggest innovators, tech companies, I mean, Google are so famous for having um, have so many products fail. There's, you know, there's that website, the Google Graveyard, and there's just so many products that they've uh, ultimately switched off over the years but that's all fine that's all part of the journey and i think that the google graveyard is the best illustration i've seen of that you're, you're so right and you know the thing is that people you know but when you're in the, in mad places like the us right people say oh look there's loads of products that that you know takes ages to sell um but you know they get massive investment that's not true people put massive investment often into people who've previously been successful but not into somebody who hasn't, and therefore they think that's a good bet. But that's the exception. Most of the time we're starting with a relatively limited amount of money to try and find out as quick as possible whether this is the market for us and then how we market to that market and which way we can do it quickly. Yeah, no, indeed, indeed. Yeah, what would you say to a, a small company outside of the big Western markets trying to break into them? I suppose if you think about yourself, what annoys you most, and I'm, I'm not saying that I'm an expert on this, but nothing worse than people not being able to speak the language in terms of the written language. So, you know, when you've got your website and your content and everything, it's really important to get somebody else to read who is, who is local. 
um, exactly what you've written because those are the small things that make people nervous. Um, just as much as if you or I were writing a German website, we could use Google Translate only so far and then we'd have to get somebody local to go and make sure it's correct. I think about, you know, all the principles that we've talked about, about, you know, breaking into any market, it applies in all cases. You know, the process is the same. Yeah, well, clearly, yeah, I, 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 I get that. I do only have one last question for you in that case, and that's where, where can people find and connect with you online? Oh, good question. Um, I'm a real LinkedIn person, so if anyone wants to connect with me, I'd be delighted to connect with them on LinkedIn. Well, thanks so much for spending time with us. I really appreciate it. I feel like I've learned a lot there. And thanks very much. Pleasure. And if anybody has any questions that, based on what we talked about, either they can go, go to you guys or go to me. I don't mind ever. I'm happy to help if I can. Ah, that's great. Thanks so much, Maeve. That was all pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about transforming your marketing career through certified online training, head to digitalmarketinginstitute.com. Thanks for listening.